Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. Yes, it's true. We're here in those historic Zone Radio studios. I mean, they were historic long before we got here. I don't know if we're burnishing or tarnishing. (laughs) We're adding to. Ah, all right. There we go. Uh, I'm Rich Kimball. That's Carrie Haskell. Downtown is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Episode number 232 for you. Two fine conversations this week. A little bit later on, former NFL player, now activist, R.K. Russell. He was the first active player in the NFL to come out as bisexual. He's working on a new book and continuing to fight for a number of causes. We'll chat with him in just a little bit. But up first, guy's been around the music biz for a long time. Well, more than 50 years. Little family band from Newport, Rhode Island that burst on the scene in the late 1960s. We're talking about the Cowsills, who scored big with hits like The Rain, The Park, and other things. Hair, What Is Happy? Uh, They've had their struggles along the way as a family, all documented in the powerful film a few years ago called Family Band. But they're back and they're making great music. Their first album of new material in some three decades called Rhythm of the World. And we had a chance to talk about the music, the album, and the career of the Cowsills with Paul Cowsill here on Downtown. Hey, Paul, how are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for, for making a little time for us today. Well, thank you for having me, I'll tell you. Man, I've been listening to the new album uh, ever since Friday. It is, it's absolutely terrific. And well, I understand that we uh, have to thank in some part of the folks on the Happy Together Tour for bringing this all together. It's true. <laughs> it's true. You know, we were out on that tour and... Uh, Every night uh, when the Turtles would sing Happy Together, Howard Kalin, Eddie from Flo and Eddie, he would, you know, insist that the audience get up. And they'd start screaming at him, get up, you got to get up, like that. And me and Bob were hearing that, and Susan were hearing that every night. And we said, gosh, we should write a song about you got to get up. And so that plus Susan harping on me and Bob that we need to make an album. We need to (laughs) get in there one last time and make this album. So those two things happened, and all of a sudden, we write, you got to get up, and all of a sudden, we're on these buses, so me, Bob, and Susan would stay up while everybody went to sleep, and we started writing, and the three of us hadn't really ever written together like that. Me and Bob had already always written together, but the three of us, me and Susan, we really started collaborating on lyrics and stuff, and so we wrote these songs on the Happy Together Tour, so it, it is... It is the Happy Together tour that, that had us in that space to where we could get this done. Once we we wrote them, well, then the natural thing is to record them. Well, and uh, you got to get up. Kicks off the album. It really sets the tone for just a, a fun, incredible album of, of those patented cow sill harmonies. Great musicianship, and uh, it really is a multi generational cow sills band these days too. It is. Our kids are in the band now. I feel like the King family. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, Brendan, uh, my son, is playing guitar and singing. He's got that kind of voice like all of us. And Bob's son, Ryan, is on keyboards. He took over keyboards for me because I was tired of 
you know, putting strings and all these other things that, that we need in the songs. And, and then, then, then they're asking me to sing. So it, but it was a collaboration by me, Bob and Susan, and it started pouring out and, you know, songwriters, they'll know when you write a song, you want to record it. You just got to record it. You got to get it down. And, uh, and that's what we were hoping to do. And we got it done. Uh, the title cut, Rhythm of the World, is uh, fantastic. It's an appeal for all of us to to take care of our home, but also just a, a fantastic song to listen to. I was grooving to it this morning in the sunshine on my back porch. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, Susan did a good job there. That's her melody. That's her thought, okay? And and, and that's how she thinks. And And so it's interesting because we were talking amongst ourselves going, gosh, you guys, the world is almost in the same position as it was back in when we were first coming in to this. There was a war. There was civil rights. There was everything was going on. You know, we were getting underneath desks, uh, hopefully to, you know, avoid getting burnt by the nuclear thing. And, and now all the way now into these years, the same things are happening. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. So we, kind of lended our voices to some some thoughts really you know we've got lend a hand where you would want everybody to mm. to help that guy on the corner okay because that could be you you could have lost your job on friday and now you're at the costco corner hoping for some food or for some money they're not that different than you and i and and you know and it's all about loving you got to love each other and can we do that you know and and that's you know kind of what we were asking in that song otherwise you know and rhythm of the world, just Susan's thing about you know the world and how beautiful it is, but we got to take care of it. We can't we can't just forget about everything. And and so it just seems timely. Unfortunately, uh, uh, the juxtaposition to rhythm of the world would be nuclear winter, you know. And that's a song we right. wanted to do because you know it's pertinent to us. You know, we've always it's always been with us, and, and nobody wants it. And, and nowadays. It's, being talked more about today than ever. We're talking with Paul Cowsill here on Downtown. The new album is out, and it's fantastic, Rhythm of the World. Some very personal songs on there, too, including a really terrific tune uh, that remembers a friend of yours uh, called Hawks on the Line. Yes, Hawks on the Line. You know, I live out here in the middle of, uh, we have a hay farm, and uh, we'd be going to town, and I would look up on the, the lines, the phone lines and the, the irrigation lines, and I'd see these hawks. You know, and I know hawks usually are one hawk per a, a, amount of uh, area. You know, they'd usually, but I've caught, I've counted 10 going to work, and I, I said to Luann, my wife, I go, I think somebody wants me to write a song about hawks. <laughs> And it was so funny because I started writing it, and my friend Renee, who I'd worked, uh, you know, we were scenic artists in movies and stuff, and all of a sudden I realized, God, this is about her because she, Rich, she thought she was a hawk, and she thought she could fly, and she thought her hawk came, the her own hawk would visit her, and and so as soon as I realized this was uh, about Renee, man, that song came flowing out. And another very awesome. A very personal song that uh, you wrote as well, uh, Goodbye's Not Forever. Goodbye's Not Forever. That was, yeah, that was a sad time of life. I was taking care of two boys that had muscular dystrophy. They were brothers, which was unusual uh, in and of itself. And I would go to school with them, and I was with them six years, total caregiver, getting them up in the morning, showering, getting them teeth brushed, doing this whole thing with them. 
And then time was going by. It had been six years, and, and it was time for me to leave and time for Drew, one of the boys, to move on and get himself going to college and stuff. And I was sitting outside looking through these branches, uh, waiting for him to get out of school, and I just realized I was going to have to tell him I was leaving. And uh, I just started writing all these words down, and uh, and it was a very sad song, really, to write and to sing in the studio. It was very tough. I had to think about baseball and cold showers and things like that. <laughs> but Drew's brother, Danny, who is still alive and still has it, he heard it, and, man, it, it, he loved it. And so it, it was a, a cathartic song to do. Uh, the last song on the album, uh, man, what a what a gut punch! Ooh. And I understand that that uh, all three of you uh, wrote the song together and done from the perspective of your brother Barry, who was lost in Katrina. Yep, Barry came through Bob's brain, you know, because everybody was trying to figure out, well, how do we write this, and how does it become delicate, you know, and how can we do this with it meaning something? And then all of a sudden, Barry started throwing these words out, and that song is from Barry's point of view, you know. I was born in 54. Well, that was Barry. That Barry was born in 54, you know, and my mom was pregnant with John, <laughs> you know, and the storms were coming. And actually the hurricane was, uh, you know, the, in 54 was Carol. And we were in Newport, Rhode Island when that hit, you know, and so that's referencing that, that, you know, we knew this, this hurricane stuff before. And yeah, and it's just, uh, it was, yeah, it was a very tough song to do. But uh, it was all about B and what his what what he went through. And well, anybody who uh, Barry told him, anybody who knows your story or, or who has seen the documentary uh, knows what you've dealt with and know what a, what an incredibly unimaginable day that was. The day that uh, you, you were able to find Barry, and then you get the news about your brother Bill. Yes, we were having a memorial. We were having that Irish wake for Barry. And there were people from all over, Rich, all over, all over the place, and and it was just, yeah, it was, it was, it was so heavy. It was so heavy, and we had to tell the people they came from all over the world for Barry, and then we had to tell them right there during the wake that Bill had passed, mm. and everybody just went, you know, it was. It was crazy. It was crazy. But then we just started playing music, and we rock and rolled all night. We did Barry tunes and Billy tunes, and and everybody was happy at the end. Uh, there's a funny moment uh, in one of the recent episodes of the podcast, which is great, by the way. And I think it's Susan who says, you guys can always tell when someone has just seen the documentary because of their, oh, their yeah, facial yeah, expression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. It happened to all of us in one way or another. You know, I, I worked in the movies, and so I was doing this TV show called Grimm. And uh, I went to work one morning, and all of a sudden I saw the grips and a couple of electrician guys coming with their hands out looking to give me a hug. And I go, guys, I'm okay. I'm okay. But, you know, you can always tell somebody who might have seen it when they look at you, if they have that, you can tell they watch the documentary. And so we always want to reaffirm to everybody we're good. We made it through it, you know, with the love of each other, all of us siblings, we were always very tight. And so we made it through it by being by being the family we are, you know, and that's why this new album, it just has the same love going on. People go, well, why are you doing this? Well, because we love each other and we want to do it and we love playing music together and, and we want 
and, and we just want to do it. And so, yeah, it was very cathartic. This whole album, honestly, was so much fun to do because we didn't really think we'd ever get this opportunity to write original tunes again that were decent, were good. You know, we didn't really know how it was going to be accepted, honestly, because we just wrote them and then recorded them. And we kept going back in the studio going, well, guys, so I like this song. And yeah, we like this. And so we're figuring, well, if we like it, maybe the people will like it. Well, the people will love it. Absolutely. It's great stuff. And we also have to thank uh, Dr. Rock Positano for his role in bringing this all together. Oh, my God, Rich. Without Rock, this isn't even a done deal. This is a deal that never got done because we were underneath a, a, a pledge thing. Uh, pledge music was like, you know, where you would go ask for money so you can make the album. Well, we had a lot of pledgers and we were way up to like $70,000. And then pledge music went bankrupt and none of us got any of that money to do anything. And Rock had also put money into the pledge campaign because he asked us, he goes, well, what do you want to do? Want to get rid of the pledge and we'll just do this? But there had already been like 800 people that pledge 20 bucks or 25 bucks and and we said to rock well we don't want to do that we we want the pledge people to get their stuff and and he goes then we'll then we'll do it that way and he bought out pledge and then it went belly up and then rock just called us and said look it don't worry about anything we're going to make this album we're going to get this done we don't need pledge i can get pledge some later down the road and he became our executive producer and he's all in this guy, he's all in. He's all in, and he told us the other night he's all in, and he's in a thousand percent. He could have said a hundred and ten or a hundred and five percent, and we would have been happy. But when he said he's all in a thousand percent, that means it's going to get a shot, and people are going to get to hear this album. Unlike a couple of other albums that we've had out that went right to a shelf. <laughs> I want to go back to the early days for a moment. We were fortunate enough to have the great Carl Reiner on our show a few years ago, and it was Carl Reiner who was responsible for you guys recording Hair. It was. He was doing a TV show. Harper's Bazaar was a magazine back in the day, and they wanted to do a TV show that talked about the fashion and the hair and all this, and we were a clean-cut family band back then. And Carl called up, and he said, Look, guys, I want you to do this song, Hair, it's from the play, and we weren't really, you know, we, we didn't really, hair really wasn't a big thing then. Little did we know that Oliver and Three Dog Night and everybody was going to be doing a song from that show, but we were just doing a TV show that was going to show the times, and Carl asked us to do the song. We went in. It took us two days. They wanted us to split the song up between everybody, so Bill starts it. I come in after Bill. Bob's in after me. Barry and John's in after Bob, and then Susan is and Spaghetti, and uh, and it was a terrific, And but it was just for a TV show, and then it sat for eight months until Carl was ready to do the TV show. But then everybody heard it and was going, man, this is a great song. And we called MGM and said, hey, we're putting this out. And they said, no, you're not. It'll ruin you. <laughs> and uh, it didn't ruin us at all. And we put it out. Somebody uh, in Chicago at WLS played it. And that's all it took. Back then, you know, the radios were, were the kings. And so everybody started calling in. And MGM was forced to put it out. It was our biggest seller. It was sold like $8 million, And uh, it was our biggest hit. And uh, well, and it was also the last hit because the band broke up kind of later on, uh, you know, in the 70s, 71. I got drafted. My draft number was two. Ouch. And, you know, my dad was in the Navy for like 30 years. I mean, we weren't going to be draft, uh, draft dodgers, you know, or any of that, you know. So I got drafted. And so I went. And then 
the band pretty much broke up after that. So, and you know, we play a lot of uh, classic rock oldies here on the station. And just yesterday, I think I was listening, and, and the rain, the park, and other things came on. And that song, as it did fifty some years ago, it just stands out. It's got such a unique sound, and I guess a part of that is because uh, Artie Kornfeld uh, wrote that along with Steve Dubroff just for you guys. They did. They did. They had it in their minds. They saw us in Newport, Rhode Island, and they saw the kid band, man, and they went, oh, this looks great. And, you know, when Steve and uh, and Artie, they had just had, I'm the Pied Piper, follow me, and I'll show you. Well, that was their song. So they became, you know, back back then, if you had a hit, you could become an A&R guy, or you could bring bands to a, uh, to a, a label, and they would listen to Artie and Steve because they had just had a big hit. And so... That was it, and and Artie was our producer. Artie was our George Martin, and uh, and he believed in us. You know, he wasn't keen on mom, so we knew he didn't <laughs> put mom in the band because he wasn't real happy about it. We're still trying to figure out who did that, but we don't know. I we I always think that my dad was watching the King family on TV one night and went, you know what, we're going to put Barbara in the band. Look at all those moms are in their band. And, uh, and then it did it, you know, and it was funny because all of a sudden you get mom in the band and we have this big hit. <laughs> and so she's in. I want to mention, too, uh, for anybody who might be in the area, you guys are doing a terrific uh, residency, essentially, out in Branson, Missouri, uh, later in the fall at the Andy Williams Theater. Yeah, we're getting the opportunity to do the annual Andy Williams Christmas show. And it's uh, it's going to be for five weeks. We start November 1st, end on uh, December 9th, and it'll be uh, six shows a week and all Christmas. And, man, we love Christmas. And to be able to be doing it all through November, because, you know, when I would be at work, I'd start doing Christmas carols really early, and people would really frown upon it. And uh, But now we're going to be deep in Christmas all of November, and it should be so much fun at Branson. Yeah, if you can get out, it'll be a hoot of a time, I'll tell you. Well, it's out now, Rhythm of the World, the brand new album, the first new one in nearly three decades for the Cow Sills. It's available in stores, on streaming services, and uh, man, is it great stuff. Uh, you guys sound wonderful together. It's so good to have new Cow Sills music, and, and great to talk with you today, Paul. Well, thanks, Rich. Yeah, we're very proud of it. You know, our vocals are ringing true. We're very happy we can still sing and sound good and sing on pitch. As you get older, a lot of times, you know, old people can't really sing on pitch, and we're still hanging in there. Well, we're glad to hear that. Thanks again, Paul. We wish you continued success. Thank you, Rich. Everybody be safe out there. Paul Cowsill with us here on Downtown, the podcast. A quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and we'll return with former NFL player and activist R.K. Russell next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Every 
album Rhythm of the World. A little bit of the Castles right there. A song called Hawks on the Line. Back here on Downtown, our next guest, a former NFL player who these days uh, is working as an activist for LGBTQ plus rights and working on a new book as well called The Yards Between Us. We had the pleasure of talking recently with R.K. Russell. R.K., thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, for you, how difficult was that decision to come out? Well, I want to say, first and foremost, you know, coming out is a tough decision for everybody. There are so many factors um, that come into play with coming out. You know, your safety, your well-being, uh, your family, your relationships, the way you were raised. A lot of people, you know, have religion be a factor of it. Um, there are so many factors. And, and for me, one of the main factors and the biggest uh, at that time obstacles was also my profession, was being an NFL player, you know, being one of the most hyper-masculine sports uh, in, the, in the world. I would say it was definitely a difficult decision, but to come out for me was the right decision. It was a choice of survival. Um, it was a choice of putting myself and my own self-worth and self-love above just what I did um, for a profession. And, you know, I have no regrets. And my, my life has definitely transformed tenfold since, since that moment. And I'm so grateful. Yeah, well, why was it important for you to do that? Not just to your, your family and, and friends, but but to do it in a public way. Yeah, I mean, football in the NFL specifically, you know, that is an organization, a sport that I love so dear that has brought me so many relationships and, and you know, family and brothers and, and mentors and opportunities in my life. And it felt like, you know, in the 100 plus years that the NFL has been founded and established, I believe, you know, now currently, I believe there's only 16 players in the history of the NFL that have, that have come out um, publicly. So I also saw room for growth. I saw room for the organization and the game that I love so much um, in the LGBTQ plus community and the identity and the community that I also belong to, to hopefully continue to bridge this gap and to, and to support each other and to love each other and to be better, um, specifically the NFL being better to the LGBTQ plus community and football and male sports um, being better and, and more inclusive and more diverse and more um, intentional in, in, in the way that they support their LGBTQ plus players, fans, um, everyone. What was the impact of that decision, not just personally, but also professionally for you? The impact professionally, honestly, it, my career was kind of not the last thing I was thinking about because a lot of my family and friends, uh, you know, did ask about football once I told them about my decision to come out. And, you know, it, it, it was a point of I should be able to live my truth and be who I am and also play the game that I love. And, and that was my final statement before coming out. And that's the statement that I, I still champion, not just for myself, but for any LGBTQ plus uh, athlete in any sport. Um, my career and really my relationship with football has kind of transformed because I went from, you know, playing for a singular team and being on the field and having that impact in that moment, uh, you know, to impact those around me in that city to now having a relationship um, with the NFL and with athletes at large across the league, across 32 teams, you know, in, in, in the corporate sphere to, to start in um, really spearhead pride initiatives such as the, the NFL's national coming out APSA and um, the pride table talks they have, uh, you know, all of these things, the, the, the glad NFL Super Bowl events, um, and to really hopefully make an impact across the league instead of kind of making an impact for one team uh, in one city. We're talking with R.K. Russell here on Downtown. As for the NFL itself, uh, is, there, is there legitimate support from the league, 
or are they just saying the right things? <laughs> I think there's definitely legitimate support. One, I've, I've been in those offices. I've talked to a lot of people who truly champion LGBTQ plus athletes. But I also, I encourage the skepticism. I encourage, you know, the, the, the critiquing eye on the NFL because I think that's also how we create progress. I think it's also how we make sure that the NFL is not just, you know, talking the talk, but walking the walk. I think it's, you know, the football in and of itself is a very critical sport. You can, you know, make a play and in real time, a hundred thousand people can tell you how they feel about <laughs> it. Um, so I, I think that's, I think that's healthy. I think that's part of the growth. Um, and I think that's, that's, that part, that's part of what keeps the work honest. Um, I will say that in the past five years, maybe in the past decade, we've seen more progress in the NFL in terms of LGBTQ athletes than we've seen in the prior um, in the prior years, almost 90 plus years. So I, I'm very encouraged that the NFL is moving in a positive direction. Um, progression, sadly, is not linear. There will be peaks and valleys. Uh, but this book, The Yards Between Us, in my purpose um, as an athlete, as a writer, as an advocate, is to make sure that the NFL is more progressive and accepting um, when it leaves than when than when I started. How easily do you accept your new role? Because uh, you you clearly are a voice of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, is that where you want to be in your life? You know, I think that from coming out, there was an impact beyond what I could even have imagined. I felt naturally a calling to speak up and to use my voice, to use my story, to use my gifts, my abilities, such as writing uh, with a memoir like The Art Between Us, and to advocate and support people in ways that I can. I think now being a voice, specifically also in sports for LGBTQ plus people, is an honor. You know, the, when hosts like you invite me on, when organizations want me to speak, when universities invite me to come, when publishers want me to write my story, that's an honor. And, and, and I feel lucky and fortunate to be in that place. I feel confident in my ability to positively impact and move the needle, push the needle forward. Um, and I am hoping to build a legacy that when I leave will have made real change in this world for LGBTQ plus athletes and for all people, for black people, for for every every intersection that I encompass and also those that I don't. Um, so I'm very fortunate. I feel strong purpose and strong calling. And I will do it until people, you know, until I can't anymore, essentially. Well, these are uh, interesting and, and sometimes perilous times for people in the community and, and for the whole nation, as well as we see a number of states that have enacted uh, laws restricting the participation of, of trans athletes. And all of this, to me, I, I find very curious because it, it seems to be a, a lot of laws finding a solution to a problem that doesn't actually exist. Yes, I, I definitely agree with that last statement, you know, and I think a lot of the policies, specifically with trans athletes and, and more specifically with trans women in sports, are not founded in science, but really in fear or in bigotry or in, you know, some misguided um, attempt to, quote unquote, protect women's sports, uh, which, you know, also historically, you know, in women's sports, these same, you know, lawmakers in Policymakers, um, opinion, opinion, opinionated people did not feel the need to protect women's sports. You know, with uh, pay disparities and discrepancies between female athletes and male athletes. Um, you know, with healthcare or women's healthcare, abortion, all of these things. Um, you know, they weren't speaking up then, but now, but now all of a sudden, women's sports is important to them and quote unquote <laughs> protecting it from from trans athletes. You know, so 
there, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, I, I also lend my voice, my platform to the, to the LGBTQ plus and trans community when I can, um, because sports is supposed to be a uniting factor. It's supposed to be family. It's supposed to be a place where regardless of where you came from or who you are, where you can come in and make an impact and work hard and, and dedicate yourself to a team and be, and be family. And, and, and be a part of a unit to be work for a greater purpose and a greater goal. And, and people are using that um, and weaponizing it against people when, when that is not the true, the true um, power and calling of sports. When uh, the book comes out next year and we can't wait for it, it's called The Yards Between Us. Uh, what will we learn that we don't know about R.K. Russell? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> the Yards Between Us is, I mean, it, it's so personal. I, I have been saying recently it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, and I think as playing in the NFL, uh, that should carry some weight because this this is a very vulnerable um, and truthful book. But it's also all I hope is that you know, regardless of whether you are an LGBTQ plus person, a black person, a athlete, uh, that you pick it up and you read the story of a human being that you see commonalities um, in yourself, in your brothers or sisters or your family members, your coworkers, your peers, and that it humanizes topics that sometimes are often talked about with such um, callous and such uh, separation and devoid of emotion. I hope that it humanizes those things for people. I hope that it, people also feel seen, um, they feel loved and respected, and, and I hope that they, they see that my journey, regardless of the outcome of football, is a journey of love and inspiration and motivation and hope. Um, that That is my hopes for, for anyone who reads The Yards Between Us, and that is also a, a gift uh, that someone could give me um, from, from reading it. So The Yards Between Us, available May 2023, but also is available now for pre-order wherever you pre-order your book. Do you see a time, RRK, when homophobia, transphobia aren't part of the fabric of not just football, but, but sports or America in general? Yes, I think I think you know there will always be resistance. There will always be hate. Nothing is is perfect. I think a lot of the times, um, LGBTQ plus uh, athletes and really well, I guess homophobia is weaponized for uh, ulterior motives and in, in a different purpose than actually to protect the purity of the sport. Uh, but I do see a time where that becomes the minority. I already do feel like it's the minority. I feel like it's a small, loud group making a lot of noise. And I think they're getting louder and louder because they see that they're losing this battle. Um, but I see the, I see the moment where an athlete can come out can be celebrated and then go to work the next day. You can cheer for them or you can root against them because they're going against your favorite team. And we, and we, we move forward and we see it more frequently. Um, and we, and we see all the negativity less frequently. I think that day has been coming. I think we're on that, that scale and that slope. And uh, I'm, I'm excited for it. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that that day comes soon. Well, we look forward to the book, uh, The Yards Between Us, coming out next May. In the meantime, uh, keep up the great fight and the good work you're doing. And thanks so much for making time for us today. Of course. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. That's R.K. Russell talking with us here on Downtown. Again, the book coming out next year. Our thanks to R.K. for being with us. Thanks to Paul Cowsill as well. And to you for joining us this week. We'll see you next time on Downtown.